CLUSA Newsletter, November 21, 2023. The Dynamic of Knowing. I have been a neonatologist for more than 30 years and medical director of a program of prenatal palliative care that I created here in New York, New York, with the purpose to help families like Indy Gregory's family. I wrote these observations on November 13th, 2023, when Indy was still alive. In the third chapter of The Religious Sense by Luigi Gisani, he discusses the impact of morality on the dynamic of knowing. He proposes a method to get to a true knowledge of an object. In the chapter, Gisani talks about feeling as an ever-present component as we face anything of interest in reality. As I am looking at the little Indy and her situation, how many feelings I detect. I feel a lot of sadness for her diagnosis. She is affected by a progressive, incurable disease. And I ask myself, why should a baby have this condition, which is life-limiting, and not be able to be healthy and live for many years enjoying life? I feel upset for the large burden of pain Indy has suffered in her brief life. In intensive care, and I know this so well, babies undergo painful procedures all the time such as frequent suctioning of their trachea, injections, and needle sticks to get laboratory tests. They have catheters and tubes in many parts of their little bodies. They cannot be breastfed or bottle-fed and have a family life like any other baby. Life in intensive care is a life of suffering, but the burden of pain can be reasonable if the outcome is healing or at least improving. I also feel the sorrow for the parents. They would want to see Indy healthy and happy with a long and happy life in front of her, but this cannot happen with this terrible disease. Unconceivable sorrow. Moreover, I feel the physician's and nurse's frustration. This feeling is very familiar to me. They feel they are torturing the poor baby with all the procedures needed in intensive care, and yet all this effort does not bring anywhere, if not to the inevitable. Lastly, I strongly feel the grave injustice because the decision about Indy's care has been taken by a court. This is really terrible, the most inhuman aspect of the situation. So then, in the middle of these feelings, how can we know the truth? How can we know what Indy's destiny is, and how can we serve her destiny? Jasani suggests that feeling is an essential factor for seeing, not in the sense that it sees itself, but we need to focus it. Feeling does not need to be eliminated, but it must be in its proper place. Moreover, Jasani states that Morality is the sincere desire to know the object in question in a true way and to love the truth more than our ideas about it. I wanted to follow this method suggested by Jisani and I put together these points below. 1. Indy is given. She has been created by God. Thus, her life is precious and needs to be respected as it is. 
because she is. Two, since Indy is given, no one has the right to decide a priori the date of her last day of life. Certainly not a court, not the medical professionals, and I dare to say not even the parents, because she is given to them. The last word on Indy's life is by God only, who gave her life. Three, how do we get to know God's will for her destiny? The Lord will let us know through Indy. God talks through reality, giving us signs. Thus, we need to look at the signs with attention. Four, let's look at the signs. Indy has an incurable and progressive disease. What does this mean? She will get worse and worse, and there are no known treatments. Her conditions are currently very severe, so much so she can't breathe on her own and will never be able to do so. Her condition can be defined as terminal because if you turn off the life support, she will die in a very short time. Life support is used for people that, for certain reasons, cannot breathe on their own for a certain period of time, but it is used as a temporary bridge until the person is able to breathe on their own. Five, I would like to underline that life support is absolutely different from nutritional support. For example, Terry Schiavo case. Nutrition is part of the ordinary care for a patient and must be offered as long as a person is alive, which means that the person is breathing and the heart is beating. Life support is an extraordinary means, as I explained above. Six, the signs we are observing speak clearly. We need to prepare for the fact that Indy will have a brief life, which could have ended already, without the help of life support. 7. However, it's not so easy. Her parents love her and do not want to let her go. Therefore, we need to help them become fully aware of the reality of Indy's destiny. This is a journey with small steps, and that happens with time and patience. Over the past 30 plus years, I journeyed with hundreds of families on this road, and the pathway is different for each family. Sometimes the decision is made quickly. Sometimes it takes a long time, weeks or months. Eight, I also would like to underline that palliative care is not about just pull the tube or pull the plug and give sedatives for comfort. Palliative medicine is walking a journey with the family to accompany the family and the infant to his, her destiny. Nine, also the alternative solution, if the parents want everything to be done, let's do it, put a trach and keep going. It is not right either. What I propose and advocate is a difficult and dramatic journey that keeps in mind all of the factors including respecting the love of the parents for their baby and the destiny of the baby at the same time. Time, patience, medical knowledge, compassion, and effective engagement are all needed. In conclusion, I believe that Indy's life must be absolutely respected for what it is. Our role as medical professionals 
is to take responsibility in supporting the parent's desire of loving their baby. Love for a child is one of the original desires present in our heart, till the point of welcoming the baby's destiny and accompanying the baby towards that destiny. Elvira, New York, New York. Peace in the Middle East by Stephen Adubado. The internet discourse surrounding the conflict between Israel and Palestine over the last few months has left me confused and disillusioned by the extreme polarization. Surely, I have plenty of my own opinions about what I think is happening in the Middle East. But following Father Gisani's exhortation to love the truth more than myself, which is to say, to be more interested in reality than my ideas or opinions, I decided to try to find someone living in the midst of the situation to help me and the followers of my platform to better understand what is actually happening on the ground. More importantly, I wanted to understand what this experience has been like for people living in the midst of it all. Thanks to my friend Simonetta, who connected me with Marinella, a member domini living in Jerusalem, I was able to get in contact with Abbot Nicodemus Schnabel, the abbot of two Benedictine monasteries in the Holy Land. Abbot Nicodemus attempted to offer a balanced explanation of what's been happening and shared with me his desire to cut through the polemics and live this crisis on a human level, which for him means to mourn the deeply painful experience of violence and death with his friends, among whom are Christians, Muslims, and Jews. Living in this way, said Abbot Nicodemus, is extremely lonely as most people rather skip to the level of political discourse before engaging with their hearts. Yet, he trusts that he and others who share his desire to mourn, but also to foster peace and reconciliation, will be a sign of hope in a gloomy sea of darkness and evil. The fact that Abbot Nicodemus does not give a definitive political assessment of the conflict is not to say that engagement with political questions doesn't matter, but rather that we are more free to engage such questions when starting from a more human position, one that begins with the primacy of the heart. The podcast and blog I curate, called The Cracks in Postmodernity, attempts to engage the intersection of philosophy pop culture, religion, and politics in a manner that gives space to the most pressing questions and desires that we as humans share. The platform reaches an audience whose political, religious, and cultural commitments vary widely. Thus, why it was important for me to offer content that transcends conventional polemics and rather that provokes a more nuanced engagement with the crisis at hand. John Fosse, 2023 Nobel Laureate. In 2012, the Norwegian writer John Fosse decided it was time to face his limitations. A prolific playwright, he had seen his theatrical works produced more times than almost any living author. But 
In addition to artistic burnout, he confessed to himself that he was an alcoholic. That year, he stopped writing plays, gave up drinking, and was received into the Roman Catholic Church. It's a fairly ordinary story, as Fosse himself would be the first to admit. What brings it to our attention is that Fosse recently won the Nobel Prize for Literature. While his plays continue to be widely staged, his international recognition has come largely from his fiction, which he began to write in the wake of his personal crisis. His best-known work, and it must be said that he is not exactly a blockbuster author, is simply called Septology, which is a long novel in seven parts, as its name implies. It is a book that takes a little getting used to, because the writing style is so unusual. In some ways, it is similar to what has been called stream of consciousness. Instead of a narrator telling a story, we are more or less plunged directly into the head of the protagonist. In fact, the first novel starts in the middle of a thought, and it quickly becomes clear that the whole book is one long sentence, connected by a lot of phrases like I think and yes. It would hardly be surprising if a lot of readers might find this literary approach off-putting. However, as I have discovered, with a little patience, it is possible to fall into the rhythm of the prose and get caught up in the life of an old Norwegian artist named Assel, a man whose deeply Catholic wife passed away many years before. The opening words of Septology are, And I see myself standing and looking at the picture with two lines that cross in the middle, one purple line, one brown line, it's a painting wider than it is high, and I see that I've painted the lines slowly. The paint is thick, two long wide lines, and they've dripped, where the brown line and purple line cross the colors blend beautifully, and I'm thinking this isn't a picture, but suddenly the picture is the way it's supposed to be. It's done. There's nothing more to do on it, I think. It's time to put it away. I don't want to stand here at the easel anymore. I don't want to look at it anymore. These words are spoken, or perhaps more accurately, thought, by Assel. As the excerpt indicates, beginning mid-thought with a conjunction, we are immersed directly into Assel's head in a sentence that will literally never end. Even the words of Septology also break off mid-stride. Fosse has called his style slow prose, his translator says, Fosse writes pure, repetitive, musical phrases in a stripped-down vocabulary. Fosse's repetitive, musical phrases attains an almost liturgical form, and they are supplemented by Assel's attempts to pray the Our Father, Hail Mary, and Jesus Prayer. Geltner writes of Fosse's narrative style, it is not merely the representation of the consciousness of one man. It is the representation of everything as consciousness, or what it may finally be more accurate to call the spirit. Or, as Fosse put it, everything I've written can perhaps be called a sort of mystical realism, not magical, but mystical. It turns out that Assel eventually became Catholic himself 
and finds the classic prayers of the faith to be profoundly comforting. He becomes fascinated by Christian mysticism, and in particular the thought of the medieval mystical theologian Meister Eckhart. One other complication of the storytelling in Septology is that it becomes clear that Assel knows another old painter named Assel, a man who did not give up drinking or find faith. In that sense, this book is what Fosse calls a classic doppelganger tale, the mysterious and daunting encounter with oneself. It raises many questions. What sort of grace or preference did sober Assel receive to be able to change his life, and why didn't that happen to drunk Assel? Why does one experience Christ as a living presence, even in the midst of a very ordinary and messy life, and the other does not? What is the source of an encounter that can change a life? There's much more than can be said about this Nobel laureate, but hopefully enough has been sketched out here to entice some to become readers. In fact, if Septology sounds too daunting, he has a new short novel out now called A Shining. I'll be delving into it soon. Greg, Seattle, Washington.